This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. My next door neighbor on 29th Street in Manhattan is a woman named Nancy. She's a petite Hispanic woman with a mile-wide smile and gorgeous, perfectly straight hair as she dyes blonde. Every once in a while, she will let it go back to her natural gray, and when she does, she is regal and quite handsome. When it is platinum, she looks like a Latina Marilyn Monroe, and she's all soft and bright and luminous. For the first five years or so that I lived on my block, I would see Nancy with her two children, the tall and husky Eduardo, and the John Sakata look-alike Raphael, or Rafi, as she called him. There didn't seem to be a dad, but one day Nancy appeared to look pregnant, and a few months later, her daughter Nicole was born. Then they got Anthony, a giant Rottweiler, who was a great big baby and never wanted Nancy to leave the house. Nancy was also the super of her building, and I would often see her outside, sweeping the sidewalk, taking out the garbage, and vacuuming the apartment hallways. I didn't really know her then, but we nodded when we passed each other. Back then, I would only define our relationship as polite. When I got my first dog, Scruffy, I hired a dog walker who lived three doors down, and I got the full scoop on Nancy. The boys actually weren't her sons. They were her brother's children. He apparently was in jail, and there was no mother anymore. Nancy took the kids in and raised them as her own. Maria, my dog walker, referred to Nancy as a saint. Three years ago, Nancy started to garden in front of her building. The apartment she lives in had a large, empty front open vestibule where the garbage bins were held. She had Rafi and Eduardo move the bins up to the sidewalk, and slowly she started filling this space with large clay pots and containers. She planted roses of every imaginable color, radiant purples and pinks and fluorescent reds and yellows. She was out in her garden, as I refer to it, every single day as I came home from work, beginning in March and going way into the first frost in November. Nancy's garden gave me an opportunity to get to know her. I have a backyard behind my apartment in Manhattan, and I know how brutal New York can be to a gardener. I couldn't help but be amazed and impressed at both her prowess and her easy skill. Last year, I decided to replace some of the containers holding the boxwoods in my garden. And rather than just throw them away or put them out on the street, I figured I'd ask Nancy if she wanted them. I went to her building and I buzzed, and she let me in, and for the first time I got to see where she lived. Nancy lives in a one-room apartment. It doesn't have a bathroom. She shares the bathroom with the other tenants on her floor. There's no kitchen, just a small area with a tiny fridge and a miniature oven. There's a loft bed with a ladder to get you to the top. And there were a few chairs and a small round table, probably no more than 12 inches wide. If there was ever a moment in my life that I felt humbled, this was one. I thought of all the years I have lived alone and complained about closet space or a leaky faucet or ugly kitchen cabinets. I thought of all the times I felt that things weren't good enough. 
as I looked at this woman who took care of three children and a giant dog in this tiny room who had obviously struggled to make it the very best for herself and her family. I was ashamed of my good fortune and what seems to be my never-ending quest for household perfection. I asked her one question. Where do the boys sleep? She nodded to the floor. I looked at the boys, and they could care less. They had a home and a wonderful, extraordinarily generous woman to take care of them and a good meal every night. To them, quite simply, they had it made. Every year, Nancy's garden gets bigger and more beautiful. On the really hot summer days, some of the tenants in her building come out with chairs and bask in the beauty. Others bring makeshift portable barbecues and boom boxes. I was walking my dogs this past weekend in Manhattan's glorious 85-degree weather and saw that this year, Nancy's now seven-year-old daughter, Nicole, had brought out an inflatable pool. I complimented Nancy on another spectacular garden. The flowers were glorious, cascading everywhere, the colors spellbinding and happy and carefree. When I told her how extraordinary it was, she thanked me and said simply as she splashed at Nicole in the plastic pool, Debbie, this is how I make life beautiful. Making our lives beautiful is not something new to our culture, our generation, or even our century. The arts of primitive people indicate that for the majority of individuals, the appreciation of beauty is instinctive, regardless of status or abilities. The idea of producing objects for practical daily use that are also beautiful seems to be as old as, well, life itself. Primitive man used to decorate his hunting spears by carving geometric shapes like parallel or intersecting lines, triangles, or animal figures. Mankind seems to have an innate desire to decorate and design things. And there are few people in our history that have done more to elevate the status of everyday objects in our lives than Charles and Ray Eames. Charles and Ray Eames were furniture designers, filmmakers, artists, architects, and cultural icons. They sought to bring the good life to the general public by integrating high and low art forms, modern materials and construction technologies, craft, and design. They advocated mass production of architectural components, furnishings, and accessories as the ideal way to spread low-cost, high-quality modern design throughout the United States and the world. The famous Eames House was a study in contrast, old and new, rich and humble, foreign and familiar, mass-produced and handcrafted, personalized, modern architecture. This aesthetic of collage became the Eames's signature. Charles and Ray Eames's philosophy of the educational role of everyday things led them to develop projects that would spur people to find beauty in the commonplace. Charles heard the music of Bach in the splash of soapy water on an asphalt schoolyard. Ray saw beauty in the shape of a utilitarian leg splint and made elegant sculptures. The Eames' ability to transform the ordinary into the extraordinary is one of their great legacies. Another one of their legacies is their extraordinary family. Their daughter, Lucia Eames, had a son, Eames Demetrios, who has continued the Eames tradition of innovation and invention. And today, dear listeners, I have Mr. Eames Demetrios on the show. Joining him as well is Tom Wright, the Director of Advertising and Design for Nina Paper. I'd like to tell you a little bit more about them before we start our conversation. 
Tom Wright is currently the Director of Advertising and Design for Nina Paper. He's worked in the area of visual communications for over 24 years, and for the past 20, he has directed the visual branding strategy for Nina Paper. Probably one of the coolest jobs I've heard of. The company has helped define some of the world's most recognizable identities and was named one of Graphic Design USA's top 100 designer-friendly companies in 2005. Good call, Gordon. It, it has recently introduced a radically different paper brand, the Eames Paper Collection, based on Charles and Ray Eames's groundbreaking work and philosophies, and we'll be talking a lot more about that today. And then, of course, my superstar, Eames Dimitrios. He's a multimedia designer, exhibit designer, lecturer, filmmaker, author, and grandson of Charles and Ray Eames. Additionally, as the director of the Eames office, he directs the preservation, communication, and extension of their work. The Eames office recently collaborated with Nina to launch this new paper that we're going to talk about, and Eames frequently lectures to architects, designers, museum groups, educators, as well as participates with corporations on topics related to design, Powers of Ten, and Connecting Physical Space and Cyberspace. His, books, his book and Eames Primer provides the first documentation of the real design process of his legendary grandparents. Welcome, Eames and Tom. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. Well, let's first talk about the paper collection. How did this collaboration between Ina Paper and Eames come about? Well, it was um, kind of serendipity in a way. Um, I had the opportunity of hearing Charles and Ray Eames speak back in the 70s at the Aspen Design Conference. Uh, Nina Paper was moving forward with a brand new uh, paper line that they, we had decided to uh, uh, look at in uh, this, this particular year to introduce. And uh, one of the ideas that was brought to us by a design group out of uh, Minneapolis that we work with, Design Guys, was the Eames um, name as far as possible paper collection. I'd like to clarify for our readers that Design Guys is the name of the design firm. It's not just Tom randomly talking about guys that design. <laughs> that <is correct. laughs> really, exactly. really great design firm. There are wonderful firms. Steve Sikor is the head of that, and, and he and Kelly Munson were both very instrumental in, in helping to kind of define a number of different options for us to look at as far as paper uh, selections. Uh, when the Eames name came up, I happened to have worked for a person that um, in Detroit that went on to be with Herman Miller and became a personal liaison between um, the Eames family and Herman Miller, John Barry. John, in turn, uh, made the arrangements for me to meet Eames at the AIGA National Design Conference in Vancouver just a little over a year ago, and uh, the magic started then. Wonderful. How is the paper doing? Phenomenal. I, I can mean, only imagine. <laughs> actually, it's, it, the most interesting part of the process that we have to go through is we have to sell suppliers to inventory paper to begin with. And you can imagine walking into this business, these businessmen and, and ladies and saying, you know, here are some papers that we'd like to introduce and having their eyes light up when they realize, oh, I've seen that chair before. Oh, I've, right. I've seen the power of 10 and so forth. And so it starts pretty much with a blank look on their face. And as you get into it, all of a sudden, past memories come to the forefront, and uh, that has had been the way in which this grade line has rolled out, not only to our distributors, but of course to the design market. Now, one of the ironic things about doing a radio show on design is the fact that you can only talk about design and not actually show anything. So for our listeners, Tom, can you just give us a little bit of an overview of what the paper is like, what some of the iconography is on the paper, just so people get a sense of, of what it is that, for those that haven't seen it. Absolutely. Um, the, the, the whole concept of, of working with 
uh, Eames, and Eames made this very clear right up front, is that he has a great saying, um, he didn't want to put old wine in new bottles. And uh, <laughs> through that, what he really meant was that, you know, if we were going to go forward with this, this would not be an easy walk in the park. This would be a process just like what Charles and Ray would have gone through, uh, rediscovering exactly what the roots would be of this paper and bringing something different to the marketplace than, than what one would uh, normally envision as a paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nina Paper, at the same time that this process was taking on, was at being spun off by our parent company, Kimberly Clark Corporation, into our own business. And so at that time, not only did we have our fine paper mills that uh, make um, premium writing text and cover papers available to us, but we also introduced another mill into the equation that makes specialty papers. Wonderful. Tom, I'm going to have to cut you off. I'm very sorry to see that it's terribly rude, but I have very, very tough producers that keep me on a very strict schedule. So I'd just like to let our listeners know that this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman on the Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guests today are the fabulous and fascinating Emus Demetrios and Thomas Wright. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. Listening to the bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On managing technology the right way, we'll talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its associated risks. Heard every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Sun Jogal, the host of Managing Technology the Right Way, will interview business leaders and other experts that have shaped the way we use technology. If you want to keep up with the changing world of technology, listen to Managing Technology the Right Way with Sun Joe Gall every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. You hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line. But what about your bottom line? How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker, The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Long. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, The Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, The Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk, heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of Business Talk, businessamericaradio.com. Think you've got a grip on the profit potential your property has? Tune in to voiceamerica.com Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Commercial Real Estate 101 with Dennis Manning. Dennis will teach you the ins and outs of the massive world of real estate. You will learn the rewards and pitfalls of why to invest in commercial real estate. You'll also hear from experts in property management, lending, title work, tax-deferred exchanges, legal issues, and many entrepreneurial investors. The best part? You'll learn to generate a regular income that will lead to enticing capital gains. So don't miss one moment of Commercial Real Estate 101 with Dennis Manning. Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, right here on voiceamerica.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. 
Welcome back. It is 3.19 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Eames Demetrios and Tom Wright. If you'd like to join our conversation, or if you have a question for any of us, please call 1-866-233-7861. Before our break, we were talking about the collaboration that Eames Demetrios is doing with Nina Paper, and we're going to come back to talking about that in a little while. I'd like to let our listeners know that if they're interested in actually looking at the paper, you can go to www.ninapaper.com. That's N-E-E-N-A-H, paper.com. But I'd like to talk to Eames a little bit. Mm -hmm. And Eames, I I read a quote about the influence of your grandparents in, in our culture on the Library of Congress website, and I'd like to read this to you. Okay. This is what it says. The Eameses embrace the era's visionary concept of modern design as an agent of social change, elevating it to a national agenda. Their evolution from furniture designers to cultural ambassadors demonstrated their boundless talents and the overlap of their interests with those of their country. What do you think of that? It's a mouthful. That's what I think of it. Um, <laughs> I have it written down. <laughs> it is, uh, no, I think, I think it's. I think it's very true, and I think that when you were talking in your um, in your introduction about you know, all these different um, you know aspects of, of the Eames work, I think that w- that's really one of the remarkable things about it is that they influenced us visually. Um, they influenced us, uh, you know, in terms of the way we sit down. Um, this they affected U.S.-Soviet relations. I mean, there are all these amazing places that they made a ma- major contribution to the 20th century. Do you uh, consider your grandparents to be cultural ambassadors? I think they were. I mean, when I was growing up, they were just my grandparents. But as I, <laughs> so I'm not sure if you're asking per, from the – when we were growing up, they were incredible people to have in one's life. Um, the uh, – but – they, I think that they um, they did a project called the India Report, mm-hmm. where they in uh, India in 1958, where they recommended a national design policy to Nehru, and they which led to the founding of the um, National Institute of Design in Ahmedabad. So, and what's really great about that particular work is that they were able to look um, to not impose kind of an outside view. Of, in, of India on India, but rather help India see the beautiful design processes that were already within its culture. Um, so it was kind of a, it was, they were cultural ambassadors, but almost cultural ambassadors for India to itself. Mm-hmm. What do you think truly defines, or, or how would you describe the Eames legacy now? I think, uh, that's a great question. I think that there are many facets of the, of the Eames legacy that are physical, whether mm-hmm. it's um, whether it's the, the chairs or the Eames house or the films which uh, which they made, but I think even more remarkable than any of those one things is the design process they use and the design approach and philosophy that they had, and I think that that may turn out to be the real lasting legacy. I'll just give you one example. Yeah. Towards the end of their lives, they um, developed this idea they called the uh, the new covetables, and what they were really saying is that. If, if we continue to define success with material objects, like for example, suppose the definition of success is owning a Mercedes, which many, which is a great car, and uh, many people do define it that way. In a way, we're dooming, you know, seven billion people on the planet to failure because you just can't make seven billion Mercedes. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, what if the definition of success um, is learning to read a map, mm-hmm. or reading, knowing French or Chinese? 
or something like that. In fact, these are skills and values and covetables that gain value the more people have them rather than lose value when more right. people have them. And it's just an example, and that's a really profound idea as we try to, you know, get into this green world and this sustainable world and try to figure out how to give a quality of life to everybody on the on the planet in some reasonable way. Well, it's really interesting because it's actually the definitions of success is one of the things that I think quite a lot about, and I think that, you know, the, the one of the problems with assuming that the more materials you are able to accumulate will give you a, a, a stronger sense of, of success, I actually think that, that it's really just a distraction from your own issues of, of feeling your own worth. Right. And so I think that learning to speak French or learning how to read a map, you know, fundamentally changes your brain, right. fundamentally changes how you view the world, whereas driving in a Mercedes is really just a, a sort of stance well, just think of the story you started your, this broadcast with, which was the, uh, you know, the story of that garden that your that your neighbor has. I mean, mm-hmm. there's something that, you know, if everybody, the more people learn how to do that, how great is that? I mean, that doesn't make, way, doesn't make her garden less great. No, no. As a matter of fact, I think it's just part of you know what is truly authentic mm-hmm. and really beautiful about what human beings can do with very very little. Exactly. And yet I think there is that part of, in the midst of all that, there is what you also said, this kind of primal feeling of, you know, objects that have beauty. And I think rather than pretending that that's not part of the human condition, we should acknowledge that but just try to make really good stuff when we're making stuff. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's really quite profound that human beings even have the need to make things beautiful, to want things to be beautiful. I think that's such an optimistic aspect of our humanity mm-hmm. that that's something that actually matters to us. Right. And it's it's really too bad that we don't treat the planet the same way we want to treat ourselves, <laughs> you know, in, yeah. in, in having all this beauty around us. Um, what are some of your favorite memories of your grandparents? I, I have a I have a lot of them. I mean, there's a sort of a general memory which was which has to do with the the magic of visiting their office and just all the incredible things that were going on there. And you know, people have said that visiting that office was like walking through the looking glass, and it and it really was. And you know, we they had a beautiful they had this great musical tower where you could um, put a marble, uh, you could shoot a marble to the top of the tower, and it was like a gravity xylophone. It would play a tune. They actually had two of them. We could wow. get up to like 40 marbles going at one time. Where are they now? One, one of them's at the Eames House, and one of them's um, with the, with the museum. Yeah. And uh, and we we actually you can you can play it. In fact, when we do a member appreciation day on uh, June 20, 21st, um, we'll be uh, playing that from time to time. So if uh, any of your listeners want to become a member of the Eames Foundation, uh, it's uh, it'll be a fun it'll be a fun day. And how, would, how do people go about doing that for the listeners that might be interested? Uh, you go to basically go to EamsFoundation.org, um, okay. uh, and if and if you Google Eames House or you know um, you'll come to Eames Office, which is different than the foundation, but we have a link on that site to the, the Eames Foundation because we're very uh, taking care of the Eames House is very important to uh, the, everybody in the Eames family. Now you said that the house has recently become a foundation. Yeah, it's a, it's a major, major step, and it's uh, we're very. It, it's the first step. Our goal as a family is that uh, 250 years from now, people who care about architecture will be able to walk around the grounds of the house and have the special experiences that that people have today. 
and that takes a lot of a lot of planning and a lot of support. But the first step was to um, put the house into the into a foundation that was completely um, independent of all the other um, aspects. Even though the Ames office continues to support it, actually Nina made a generous donation, as did Herman Miller and Vitra, and so it's um, it's going to be it's a it's a long journey, but it really it's such a special place that. Uh, it just has to be taken care of, and we all kind of knew that growing up. Nobody thought when we were kids, or you know, with my mom, who's Charles's daughter, we never said, "Oh, well, it's going to be valuable someday." We just knew that it it was already valuable, but its value was its beauty and and its relationship to the landscape, and that really had to be preserved. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about you a little bit. I, I read a fact about you, or I read I read some information about you. I'm wondering if it's true. Um, is it true that you saw more than 500 movies in your senior year of high school? I'm, I'm afraid it is true. <laughs> and not you, I totally gave myself. How did you manage to do that? Yeah, well, and what's really incredible about it, what, it was before DVD and uh, VHS, so I actually saw them all in movie theaters. And uh, San Francisco had just great, you know, revival houses when I was growing up that we would... Uh, that we could go to, and it was just dynamite. So you saw nearly two movies a day for an entire year. Yeah, it's, it's appalling, isn't it? But it was really well, great. appalling is actually rather daunting and thrilling and, yeah. and yeah, it was great. remarkable. Um, what made you decide to do this? Well, I've always loved movies, and I just I was seeing a lot already. I mean, it's not like it started that that you know at the beginning of the year, but as I kind of got into it, I realized this this. Maybe I should actually keep track of it, so so I did. And, now, what you know, was the impetus for doing this? Was it to try to find your own way? Were you thinking that you were going to become a filmmaker? Were you just bored? <laughs> I think, well, what's amazing is I also had, like, a, a, um, a pretty long, uh, pretty large commitment to work, working at the aquarium in San Francisco, so I was also a volunteer at the same time, so I definitely wasn't bored, but I just always loved movies, and it just evolved very naturally as a thing to do. Yeah, I, just, I mean, the movie, movies are great. And, you know, it wasn't just new releases. It was revivals. It was, you know, Werner Herzog films. It was Chaplin films. It was Buster Keaton. What were your five favorite from that year? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Well, you, have to say, <laughs> uh, you, you, you couldn't go wrong with Aguirre of the Wrath of God, Lawrence of Arabia, um, then uh, Buster Keaton's uh, The General, yeah, or, and uh, The Gold Rush by Charlie Chaplin, and... Can't think of another. Oh well, uh, you know, two thousand and one. Mm. So, did you know at the time that that filmmaking would be part of your destiny? I did. I mean, I really did, and it still is. Yeah. Yes, I know. I want to talk to you a lot about some of the work that you've been doing. Um, we're going to go to a break uh, very soon, so I, I don't want to start on a whole new topic and then leave all of our listeners hanging in anticipation. How would you describe your work, though? I mean, you do so many different things. How do you do if somebody, you know, that didn't know who you were would ask you, what do you do? What do you say? You know, I finally come up with a reasonably good answer to that, which is that I simply wear a lot of different hats, and they are very different. Um, there's some overlap between them, but they have completely different roles. So one is, to, you know, head of the Eames office. One is my own documentaries. One is this continent-wide art project I'm working on consulting and it just it hats is the way I've come up to explain it because it is really complicated. Okay, 
Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we come back from our break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm Debbie Millman, and my guests today are the wonderful and fascinating Eames Demetrios and Thomas Wright from Nina Paper. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. When business is in your blood and you need answers, get connected. Call 1-866-233-7861. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Business talk is all we do. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Achieve total wealth management. Listen to Three-Dimensional Wealth with Roe Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three-Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three-Dimensional Wealth with Roe Diefendorf Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, businessamericaradio.com. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the air focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guests today are the superstars, Eames Demetrius and Tom Wright. If you want to join our conversation, if you have a question for any of us, we encourage you to call 1-866-233-7861, and we do have a caller on the line, Alice from Texas. Welcome to Design Matters. Thanks. Um, so I uh, wanted to share a short memory with you. My first experience with an Eames chair uh, growing up, my dad had one, and I would sit on it and spin and spin and spin until I was absolutely sick. Um, but, of course, now I appreciate it for other reasons. <laughs> um, so being that you're from this amazing, um, iconic design family, I was just curious what you uh, consider to be some of your favorite iconic designs out there? Um, great question. And uh, spinning is an, in, an entirely legitimate way to enjoy the uh, Eames chair. In fact, we'd all do, do well by doing a little more spinning in our lives. So, yeah, <laughs> you're doing well right. said. Um, I think uh, of, the, uh, of the Eames work in particular, um, I, I love the, uh, the Chaise Lounge, um, mm. which is the one that they designed for, for Billy Wilder. Um, there's the molded plywood screens, which are really quite quite magic. The, there's the um, 
uh, then there's, I mean, the lounge chair itself is, is spectacular, and then there's the beautiful molded plywood LCW, which is so simple and kind of says it all. So I really, I really love love those from the from the Eames world. If you were asking, were you asking about chairs that are other pieces beyond the Eames world, or actually, I was asking about you know anything in the world out there that you consider to be some of your favorite designs. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I I'm a big fan of the of the Chair, the Emico chair, the classic navy chair. Do you know that chair? It, it looks a little bit like a wooden chair, but it's made out of aluminum, and they designed it for the submarines right after World War II. Mm. And it's just a it's just a great chair, and I've spent a lot of time in that factory, getting to know the people who put it together. So I have a, a special connection with that. And I was recently saw in Atlanta a very beautiful, very early Rietveld chair. That was just so great. It was from the. It was like 1923. It was dated January 1923, and it still had the original paint on it. Wow! It was just, it was just magic. It was great. So oh. those, those are two that just come to mind. But there, there's so many beautiful things in that in in that world. But those are two that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Oh, great! Well, thanks so much for sharing. My pleasure. Thank you for calling. Um, Eames, I am fascinated by the concept of one of your films. Um, an oral history wherein you interviewed the same 28 people every three weeks for an entire year. Um, it reminded me a little bit of Glenn Gould's musical piece, North, which featured voices over voices over voices talking and musing, and it was it's quite an extraordinary piece. Um, what was the process of interviewing the 28 people every three weeks like? It was really one of the greatest experiences uh, of my life to be able to do that, to get to know so many different People in so many in such a you know wonderful way. It was um, it was quite intense. I was a one man band, and the meaning that I was the cameraman and the sound man and the interviewer and everything um, else, which I think was good for the interview process actually. But it was made it a little exhausting. And I actually um, calculated that I have five percent of the running time of the year 1988 on videotape. Oh wow, that's amazing! Amazing, amazing. Because each of the interviews started with what's been going on the past few weeks, and people could answer whether personally or professionally, kind of depending what was going on in their their lives. And usually the conversation would weave to cover other ground, and I, you know, had um, different topics that, you know, I would cover with each person. And so each interview would last about an hour, an hour or so, and I guess we're getting a pattern here because it was another one of these things where... It was almost two interviews a day, so... (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you... I mean... Speaking to that many people for that long a time, you start to see patterns. Mm-hmm. Did you find that people are fairly consistent? Did you feel that they're moody? Tell me about what your perceptions of the culture of people was like in that experience. Well, I think my the thing that I that I felt going into it, and I really found confirmed, is that um, decent people can disagree. And that's a thought that's kind of absent from the culture these days. And the and that experience of interviewing those people really, um, you know, uh, showed that people, you know, live their daily lives um, with a, in general with an awareness of other people's humanity. And and that that came across on a more, on, on, I mean, there was sort of this micro macro component to the to the whole project because the other side of it was that it was also about. You know, people. That was the year that Dukakis ran, and nobody had ever heard of him. So he went. People went from not knowing how to pronounce his name to voting for him over the course of the year, and so that was kind of fun, 
also, because that was sort of inspired me was the fact that when Donna Rice came on the scene with Gary Hart, I went from never having heard of her to knowing what episode of Miami Vice she had a bit part on in four days. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, how, it's amazing how, how far possible? a celebrity has fallen since then, huh? <laughs> um I, I find it so fascinating, though, to have that type of recording of people's behavior. I'm sure you're familiar with the 7-Up, 14-Up, 28-Up movies, mm-hmm. wherein you see over the course of every seven years how people change, fundamentally change, right. or don't change, um, and how their views and how their behaviors are so impacted by time. What do you think the biggest change was in people over that year in terms of what they learned about themselves or what you learned about them? Well, I think for individual, that was that's the interesting thing about the project is that a year is a long time, but it's also not necessarily, so it depended on the person. I mean, there was a woman who had a child mm-hmm. during that time, so there was, you know, um, a, a radical change. Um, one of the people I interviewed was a Christmas tree farmer because I wanted to show somebody whose economy was based on basically one month a year and how they had to structure their year around that. Um, one of the um, people um, was uh, was murdered during that year, and so it was a very oh that was a very power you know uh, powerful and devastating experience uh, all around. And uh, so it was just and then other people basically you know were going to school and in the so it was kind of in a way showed that texture of, of, of modern life, really. And somebody um, who saw it, I think, gave an interesting comment, which they said that it showed how we as a society are changing from uh, from communi- communities of memory to audiences of memory. Isn't that interesting? And I actually just saw a piece on memory on CNN wherein uh, the psychologist that was talking about memory said, basically, without memory, we wouldn't be human. I, I totally but, agree. An extraordinary, extraordinary way of thinking about how we think about ourselves and our lives and what we right. choose to remember and what we don't. Um, we have a caller uh, from New Jersey. We have Rena from New Jersey. Welcome to Design Matters. Hi, I have a, a little story to share with uh, Eames. I my first memory of your chairs is actually right after September 11th. I lived down in Lower Manhattan and. I guess there was a little delay in picking up the, the trash around the city, and we actually found an Eames lounge chair in perfect condition right in the pile of garbage. But I have to say, ever since then, I'm, I'm a bit of a, an Eames fanatic, and I think the money I saved finding a, a free chair has cost me 20 times over and uh, just becoming a big fan now. And so I just wanted to let you know that little story and to say thanks for all your hard work in preserving the legacy. Well, I, I really appreciate that, and that, that story really does show how you know these the, these chairs. You know what I like about every chair is that it has a story. And sometimes people will say, "Well, you know, my chair is a little bit nicked up, and you know, should I get it fixed?" And you know, people should do what makes them happy and you know works in their world. But I always feel like it's in some, sometimes you know, as long as the chair is working, that there's a story behind it, and you just that's just another moment in the life of the chair. And, oh, great! Uh, well, I hope you enjoyed the story because we certainly enjoy every time we sit in the chair remembering, you know, out of a very bleak time, the one thing that really made us smile. So, thanks very much. That's so great. Okay. Well, we hope we'll see you at the Eames House sometime. And, uh, oh, definitely! Believe me, I'm an Eames widow. You heard of golf widows? I'm an Eames widow. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll see us. Thank you so much. Sure thing. <laughs> um, Eames, you created an interactive CD-ROM of. One of the greatest movies of all time, speaking of movies, Towers of Ten, mm-hmm. one of the movies that your grandparents uh, created. Um, what was that like for you to do that, to sort of take it into a whole new, not only generation, but a whole new uh, 
technology. It was really fun. It was a it was a it was a couple of year experience. I I do seem to get involved with these projects that that um, are quite um, daunting in scale, and um, and actually I think uh, Tom will be pleased to know that I sort of applied that same rule of uh, no old wine and uh, mm-hmm. new bottles to the process of the creating the CD-ROM of Powers of Ten. We felt like we really shouldn't do it unless we could really make a contribution. You know that it would that it would be a experience unique to itself. That would be not necessarily better than, but um, that would enhance the the experience of the Powers of Ten film, and be and yet that you wouldn't have to be a fan of the film to uh, to enjoy it. Um, so it basically became an interactive essay on scale and sort of the history of mankind's curiosity, kind of sorted by scale. And it was it was great. So Tom, tell us, give us some give us some good juice. What's it like working with Eames? Oh gosh. Um, you know, it's 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 truly like you're you're kind of walking in the shadow in a way. I mean, he has such an incredible uh, breadth of knowledge about his grandparents, about their working philosophies. After um, his work with the, writing the primer and and so forth on them, and the stories are just they're just nonstop one after another. But he's he's relentless. He he just really <laughs> wants to pursue something that will truly make a difference. And uh, I think he made Nina a better uh, marketing. Uh, company and so forth through that relentlessness. At times, you you kind of wanted to reach through the phone and go, Eames, uh, you know, stop. Yeah, that's, stop. that's the kind of stuff I'm, I'm interested in hearing more about. <laughs> but at, at, but at the same time, you know, uh, his passion is just forever there, and it really does bring out the best. And so as we've been able to unfold this particular grade line, the the colors uh, he had, he took photos of the of the colors of, the, uh, of one of the palettes of the paper next to elements of the house to show exactly how the colors related to the textures and the elements of the diffused panels of the house. The same thing with another palette of papers that is a canvas type of uh, finish that matches up to one of Ray's uh, paintings that she did in her modernistic uh, painting style, and um, you know just. Everything he did, though, was he just wanted to make sure it followed in the footsteps and it it helped to elevate and, and produce something that was new. It was truly fun, and it's going to continue to be uh, just an extraordinary experience. Are you planning on doing any further extensions of this line at all? Well, one of the fun stories about Eames, when he came to our, our mills and he was touring with our Jerry Rector from uh, from marketing, and, and she and Eames and, and Steve were, were making their tours, and Jerry kind of was pointing out the different machines, and, and she said, well, that's the big machine. And to that effect, Eames said something like, someday I want to be on that big machine. Wow. Um, <laughs> Grand ambitions. That's, that's right. And, and uh, so I think that's what our goal is, I mean, to constantly look at this grid line. It, it's like everything else that Eames is. It has tremendous legs, and that's what we look forward to. Yeah, I encourage our listeners, again, to uh, go to www.ninapaper.com to look at these marvelous, marvelous papers. Uh, And I'd like everybody to know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. My guests today are Emus Demetrios and Tom Wright. We'll be back with our conversation after these messages. Please don't go away. More and more people are starting their day with informative, focused business talk. Top experts. Today's business issues. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. What stock should I buy? When is it time to sell? Where do I turn for honest advice on my portfolio? 
For the answers to these questions, tune in to Trading in Today's Markets with Oliver Alvarez and Greg Capra every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. On the show, Oliver, Greg, and their guests will discuss the daily going-ons of Wall Street as well as give you tips on how to identify the hottest sectors and trends in the market. Improve your portfolio. Listen to Trading in Today's Markets with Oliver Alvarez and Greg Capra. Broadcast live on Business America Radio every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Business talk is all we do. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Are your accounts stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic? Are your finances flowing at two miles an hour? It's time to crank your cash into high gear by tuning in to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense with Bullseye Bruce Horowitz. Every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Bullseye Bruce will give you no-nonsense, common-sense financial advice that anyone can understand, as well as bring you clarity on some of the most complex and confusing financial issues today. So get out of that traffic jam and listen to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Are you interested in the immigration laws that are increasingly affecting the way we all live? Then you need to tune in to Learner on Immigration every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Business America Radio. Host Brian Lerner, a certified specialist in immigration and nationality law, will give you updates on current immigration laws and allow you to call in and have your questions answered. The immigration policies of this country affect us all. Find out how on Learner on Immigration with certified specialist Brian Lerner. Heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in Business Talk, BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.49 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Eames Demetrios and Thomas Wright. We've been talking about the... Charles and Ray Eames' legacy. We've been talking about our favorite chairs. We've been talking about the wonderful new line of paper that Eames Demetrios has collaborated with Nina Paper on. And I've gotten a couple of uh, requests to uh, let everybody know where they could potentially get samples, free samples. And so apparently if you go to the ninapaper.com website that I've been directing you to and you click on the contact. Is that right, Tom? That's click, correct. Click on mm-hmm. contact, mm-hmm. Um, put their name and, and information in, you will send them uh, free samples? We'll send them samples of the paper. It's really a textural and tactile experience. Uh, it certainly is, and mm-hmm. it's just an amazing thing to have as a collectible. <laughs> I urge people to do that. It's quite, quite gorgeous. Yeah, Beautiful sketches of chairs on them and really quite stunning. Um, I'd like to talk to you both a little bit about your views on what's happening now in our culture with design. Um, obviously, Charles and Ray Eames were way ahead of their time in terms of their, really, I think their obsession with creating mass-produced goods that were beautiful. It took a long time for the rest of the world to catch on. I'm really interested in what you think, Eames, of 
work that IKEA is doing, things that Target is doing, things that Martha Stewart is doing? What is your view on what's happening now in our culture with design? I think that it, 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 there's definitely an increased design awareness in the, in the culture today, and it's, it, and it's quite exciting. Uh, and you know, some of the companies that you mentioned are, are really calling attention to that. I think that we're moving into an, an era where companies that want to be about design need to also be about authenticity, and that's um, important also. But I just wanted to make one comment about this um, design, uh, this awareness of design, is that a lot of times what people mean by design, they act, when people say design, they actually mean style. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that it's important to note that there's this aspect of design that's even that's much deeper than style. And that, I mean, Charles once said um, that the extent to which you have a design style is the extent to which you have not solved the design problem. Mm-hmm. And it's a very brutal quote, but it's worth thinking about in this context because the you know the design a, a, a simple example is that if you're just to paint a word picture, the Eames House, if your listeners don't know it, is a very rectilinear um, structure. I mean, you could fairly describe it as a pair of steel boxes because there's a house in the studio. That was built in 1949, designed and built in 1949. Um, At the exact same time, they were doing the very biomorphic very um, sensual uh, Eames La Chaise, the molded, um, the molded plastic furniture, which is also very curvilinear. So stylistically, they're very different, but they speak with a common voice. Mm-hmm. And Charles and Ray didn't say, well, we, you know, we do curves, so we have to stick some curves on the house. We do grids, we have to put some grids on the chair. They just trusted the design process to lead them to the right place. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by the difference between design and style. Um, one of my favorite quotes of your grandfather is actually this one. Um, design is a plan for arranging elements in such a way as best to accomplish a particular purpose. And I think that what uh, I think what, what a lot of people miss about design is the purpose, and it becomes design as decoration. And I think that one of the marvelous things about your grandparents' work is that it really was purpose-led design. And it was it was something that I think profoundly changed the way designers are looking at things since. Absolutely. Um, do you do you so you we were talking about authenticity? You brought up the word authenticity. Do you think that um, Target or with the work with Isaac Mizrahi or Philippe Stark uh, or the work that IKEA is doing? to bring style to the masses, or most recently I saw, believe it or not, Martha Stewart is now out with a line of constructible furniture. I, I haven't seen that. Um, that I'd be, that, I'd be very that was just extraordinary that. that, you know, you actually it's a bedroom, and it, uh, you know, you can get the whole bedroom probably for under $1,000, and you can literally, like you would go to Ikea and get their boxes and bring it home and construct the furniture yourself, you can now do that and create the whole Martha Stewart um, <laughs> well, I think the key with all these kinds of things is that when when talks about value, it's not enough to look at the price for that that day. One has to look at you know is this going to last for a long time? And mm-hmm. I think that that was that. I mean, you know, I actually talked to a guy whose accountant wouldn't let him um, deduct the um, the Eames chair the cost of the Eames chairs for his office because they weren't. I mean, wouldn't let him depreciate them because they didn't depreciate in value. Right. And I told him to get a new accountant, but um, but it was a kind of a, a, a interesting comment on the idea that these chairs are going to you know will be around for a long, long time. And so I would just be you know wary of looking at cost only over the course of you know what you're spending that um, right. day. 
Uh, we have another caller. We have Stuart from New York. Welcome to Design Matters, Stuart. Jennifer Eve. You're there. You're on. Um, you're on the air. Uh, I would like to know um, who now makes the decisions regarding the uh, newly released items. Um, I've just seen the new stuff from Vita in Europe, and Herman Miller's constantly producing stuff. So I just wondered who uh, who leads that decision-wise. Um, the the person the the Eames office makes those uh, decisions about. I mean, any new um, authorized product, which is the Herman Miller and Vitra are authorized manufacturers, um, has to be done with uh, in decided by us. And as the director of the Eames office, that that is essentially. Uh, me, I spend a lot of time with with Herman Miller and Vitra. Um, their designs, like the Eames Children's Chair, that have been out of production, and we're we're trying to bring them back. Uh, All right, I we, just saw that one. Yeah, and with um, with uh, with the, in the case of the molded plastic chair, um, it was made at one point in fiberglass. It was always a plastic chair, but it was made with fiberglass. But it was, fiberglass is not a very environmentally friendly. Um, material on a lot of levels, so we discontinued it until we could find an appropriate recyclable plastic. Um, that's what we did. And all these, you know, every designer um, needs to decide who's going to make these kinds of decisions after they're gone. And in Charles and Ray's case, they selected, they asked the family to do it, which is my, which is my mother, and then she's asked our generation to, um, uh, to help her um, with that, and I've kind of taken the lead role there. Uh, Mies van der Rohe said it was up to the Museum of Modern Art to decide what an authentic Mies chair was, and and again to have that relationship with Noel to make sure the chairs are made properly. Um, Noguchi created the Noguchi Foundation, so it's a it's a it's a big issue, and uh, but in in our case it's the family that decides that, and you know we do you know we sometimes things are suggested that we say no to, um, like we took rosewood off, another example is we took rosewood off the Eames chair and. Uh, the, with Herman Miller because it's not a, a at this at that point it was not a sustainable wood so it's a lot of different things like that you look at the mold, at the tools where the mold, you know where the molds are made because you know molds wear out so somebody has to you know make sure that the new one is right so there always has to be some, an advocate for the design and the equation well, it's okay. really great to see the all the old stuff coming back <laughs> thank it, it you is for great. that it, it is really fun it's very you know, that's the thing is that they, Charles and Ray weren't designing vintage furniture. They were designing a system to give people, reliably give people the same, the, the, the guest host experience that they wanted to do. So the chair that Charles and Ray were designing was not the old one, was the chair, there was the chair that was going to, that's going to be made tomorrow. And it's kind of an interesting way to look at it because it's a different kind of authenticity. There's another kind of authenticity which is you paint a painting and the, there's only one painting and the painter does it, and they touch it themselves. But for these people who are working in industrial design, they, they had a totally different goal. They wanted to figure out how to make it possible to keep giving people the same experience. Excellent. Thank you for your time. Sure thing. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Well, we only have about a minute left, and um, I'd like to, to end the show with our pop culture quiz, which is basically um, the part of the broadcast where I ask my guests some questions about things that are going on right now, off-the-cuff topics that I'm just curious about or obsessing over. And actually, I don't have much time to do this. I'm just going to ask you both so one question. So both Tom and Eames. Tom, you first. Okay. Describe yourself in three words. Oh, gosh. Um uh, short, wide, and envious. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
at you. Wow, that's that's a hard one to follow, Tom. Um, <laughs> I, I guess I would say tall, lean, and happy. Tall, dark, and handsome. No, I guess I would say uh, uh, on the road. Oh, okay. There you go. Very good. Um, Eames, I'm going to ask you one more, just because I have like 30 seconds. Okay. What is your last thought before bed? Um, I, my last thought before bed is usually um, in. The, it, in in a story that I'm working on. That's oh. what my last thought before. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we have come to the end of our broadcast, and I'd like to thank the magnificent Eames Dimitrios and the wonderful and generous Thomas Wright for joining me today. I'd also like to thank the kind and patient people at Voice America Business, Denise Dion, Chris Hilliard, Lori Call, my executive producer, Brian Travis. I'd like to thank my staff and partners at Sterling Group and my incredible producer, Lisa Grant. Please join me next week for the third show in our second season. My guest is David Barringer, author of the entire issue of Emigre Number 68, American Mutt, Barks in the Yard. Thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, or we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Get dialed in 1-866-233-7861. Up to the minute business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Did you realize that most states in our country consider assisted food and fluids artificial life support? Did you know that food and water could be taken away from you if you suffer a brain injury or a stroke and cannot speak for yourself? Did you know that denying food and fluids causes a patient tremendous physical harm, hallucinations, pain, distress, and seizures before they finally die of dehydration and starvation? And did you know that this can be done to you without your consent? The United States Congress is considering an act that would give disabled and incapacitated Americans federal review protections against such outrageous mistreatment, cruelty, and forced death. You can help. Please visit us online to learn how you can join the fight to save the lives of innocent Americans at terrysfight.org. That's www.terrysfight.org.